Welcome to Strung Out, the podcast that looks at life through the lens of an artist. Your host is the artist, writer, and musician, Martin Lawrence McCormack. Now here's Marty. Great to have you with us. Today I have my friend Paul Schneider, who has many hats he has worn in his life. Let me put it that way. Outside of my father-in-law, you're probably one of the more prolific music lovers that I know. Plus, the added benefit of being a journalist, you've written a lot about music. And for those of you that have listened to Strung Out over the years, you've heard Paul before talking about music. And as these things happen, we start talking about the podcast before we start recording when we should have been recording. And one of the things I just want to start off on was your John Hyatt story in Santa Monica, because it sounds so idyllic. Thank you, Marty. Love being here. Placing me with your father-in-law is truly high rent <laughs> district. Yeah, so we were talking about John Hyatt before because you were showing me a piece of work you were doing. And you described it as a sort of a storm. And I had told you that I was listening to John Hyatt's Slow Turning album this morning on my run. And there's a lyric in there that goes, she came onto him like a slow-moving cold front, which sort of reminded me of what you're doing there. Yeah, I saw John Hyatt after he had put out that slow-turning album way back in the 80s when I think I was still in college, maybe. Or I just graduated from college, 87, something like that. And he played in this little room at the back of a guitar shop in Santa Monica, California, called McCabe's Guitar Shop. And it was a room with about 30 or 40 folding chairs and a little stage. You could just step onto the stage. It wasn't even that high with a piano and he had his guitar and he played for an hour and 15 doing material from his Bring the Family album and then his Slow Turning on, which were the two albums that really propelled his career to a higher level than it had been. He was writing songs for other artists in Nashville primarily. And he did have a hit with, what was, I can't think of the song now, it'll come to me. But then he put out Bring the Family after he came out of alcohol rehab. Because I guess when you're in Nashville, all you do is drink. And he was drinking quite heavily and he had to go into rehab. And when he came out, he put out this album, Bring the Family, which is very vulnerable and very revealing. And then he did Slow Turning, which was even better. Can I get, it was a song that, can I get me a witness? Can I get a witness? He wrote that. He wrote really? it for somebody else. Okay. So seeing him in McCabe's was, like you said, idyllic. Absolutely idyllic. Unfortunately, I saw him a decade later up here in Highland Park at Ravinia, and it was the same show. <laughs> it was the same set list. And while I loved seeing him because he's such a great performer and he's very dynamic and just a great conversationalist between songs, and he laughs at himself very easily, it was a bit of a letdown. Yeah. to hear the same set list 10 years and three or four albums later. so It could have been pure serendipity in the fact that he looked at the bottom of his guitar case and he's like, what are we going to do tonight? Oh, God, here's one from 10 years ago. Nobody, nobody will. <laughs> here's the McCabe set list. I'll bet there was nobody here from that show. Oh, wait, that guy. That guy. He'll like it. And he's a journalist. He's a journalist. He'll like it. He won't say anything bad about me. That's one of the 
big no-nos, I think, when it comes to doing a show is relying on any set lists are dangerous, I think, for that reason. Because the temptation is, hey, I don't want to screw anything up. Let's just run with this. When you have a guy like John Hyatt, that's so prolific. You almost need to have a way of just churning up a set list. Switch back in the early days, we had popsicle sticks that we wrote the song on, and then we put it in a Crown Royal bag. And you would come to the show, you'd pass around the bag, and people would pull out the... That's so great. That sounds like the predecessor to Elvis Costello's spitting songbook. He took this giant... He actually did it on two tours. He did it in L.A. in Beverly Hills. He had this giant wheel of just all about... I think there were... He I think he said there were 40 songs on it. And he had people come up from the audience and he had a like a lounge chair. And whoever spun the wheel would get to sit on stage in this seat and watch the attractions do the song. He also had a cage with a go-go dancer who was his, at that time, his wife, the woman from the Pogues, I can't think of her name. She was the go-go dancer. And it was, it was just remarkable. And if someone came up and spun the wheel and the song came up a second time, they had to do a different version of it. The attractions were a fabulous backing band and they really had to have their chops. How did you feel about it? Was it just like performance art? It, it was performance art. It wasn't even a concert. It was vaudeville. And Tom Waits did the introductions. He was the carnival barker. And he came on stage and he introduced the band and he said, this is the attractions and the spinning songbook, this wonderful wheel. When it's Tom Wade's voice, this wonderful wheel of magic, come up and spin the wheel and see what comes up and enjoy the show. It was remarkable. And I think the Bengals actually opened up, opened the show for them. Yeah, the popsicle sticks. That's such a great idea. And I don't know why more acts don't do it. I think there's a difference between people like Elvis Costello, for example. Yeah. He is a performer. Yeah. He goes, oh, sure. You, you brought up the right word, vaudeville. And there are certain people that have that vaudeville sense that basically it was instilled in them, either from their parents or grandparents, Paul McCartney. Elvis's father was a big band leader, just like McCartney's dad played in a big in the 40s. So did, you know, Mr. McManus, Elvis's father. And I think that's actually what Paul and Elvis, the sort of one thing that they have in common that sort of drew them together to when they wrote songs together back in the late 80s. They wrote a, uh, about a dozen songs together that showed up on McCartney's Flowers in the Dirt album and Elvis's Spike. Was it Spike? I think it was Spike, yeah. John Hyatt, I saw him perform at Fitzgerald's. Oh, really? For a corporate event. Oh, so wow. there was hardly anybody in the room, and yeah. I snuck in. And uh, you're right, he's more the singer-songwriter type, yeah. where he will maybe tell a story yeah. and uh, go into a song. Yeah. And you can tell he's thoroughly enjoying it, yeah. that sort of thing. But there's such a marked difference between somebody that does performance art or is what I call an entertainer as opposed to a performer. 
thinking of that, who besides Hyatt, as far as performers, stick out in your mind? Somebody that dazzled you without having to light off sparklers. Singer-songwriters. Singer-songwriters. They do have a certain personality to them that's a bit more mellow. Um, Some of Glenn Hansard, the Irish friend of you too, but who was, uh, he had that duo with that Russian woman. Was that one? One. One. Yeah, when they, once. once yeah. When Pardon they did me. that movie once. Together. Yeah. So I saw Hansard at, I think the Chicago theater. And he, he was just the opposite. Hansard is such a wonderful songwriter and a tremendous lyricist. And I don't know where the poetry comes from. And he can't, articulate a story to save his life. He wasn't mumbling, but he was stumbling over words and he, a lot of long pauses and he was just really shy. And then he started playing the guitar and this magic came out of his mouth. He was one of them. Billy Bragg is the other. You go to a Billy Bragg concert and if you're there for two hours, he's singing for 45 minutes. And the other hour and 15 is just him talking, just talking. And it's, you're like, Billy, you got this great catalog. Do the songs. The stories are good. Do the songs, Billy. So those two acts stand out for me as far as that sort of singer-songwriter personality. And there's a fine line, like you're saying with Billy Bragg. I get into this all the time with Brian with Switchback. How long should a story be before you launch in the song? Some songs take a long story to set up the song. Yeah. The Mayfly Dance. Yeah, exactly. Great right. example. Yeah. <laughs> Brian's looking at his watch. When I've seen you guys, I've just been like, Marty, get it. Let's get on with it already. <laughs> uh, and I'm your biggest fan. And I'm just like, come on, I got to go home. But you guys don't, you guys don't take very long between songs. And when you guys perform, you the, just the two of you just generate so much energy on stage with your trademark left leg kicks that every time I see them, I have to go home and get a massage. And Brian playing whatever he's playing, his guitar, his mandolin, whatever it is. I don't know how I don't know how you guys do it. I don't know how you keep up that energy. We're more toward the vaudeville kind of thing. I think we're a throwback. Yeah. I think part of that's maybe just picking up on whatever Brian got from Jethro Burns. I think mm. part of it was me listening to the Corys, yeah. which the great Scottish singing group that very few people know about, but yet great entertainers. The whole delivery of setting up a song <laughs> is so important. And there are some people that you need Tom Waits to introduce a song for you. Because that way, the flow, there's nothing worse than not having the flow in a show. There's nobody in the universe who could have done what Tom Waits did that night. I mean, it was just, oh God, that was have you ever seen him, so magical. Have you ever seen him in Dracula? I have not, but well, I'll try it out. You should watch this character. It's great. He plays the guy that basically is Dracula's servant. Yeah. Worth seeing. Probably... Could have stole the show. He was great in that first Soderbergh film, that black and white film. Money and cigarettes, beer and cigarettes, something like that. 
We were sitting in a booth in a diner with a couple of guys. One of them might have even been Lou Reed. And it was just a tremendous, just tremendous scene from a tremendous film. Who else have you seen? Let's stick in the singer-songwriter because there's so much more intimate to begin with. Have you ever seen Springsteen? No. I'm not a big Springsteen guy. I understand the three-hour shows and the... But I'm, I've just never been a fan of his work for whatever reason. McCartney. The guy is 80 years old. And he still gets up there and does two and a half hours, two hours 45, and he takes a sip of water every so often, and he just plays and... As great as his set lists are, people walk away going, how come he didn't do 401? How come he didn't do Good Day Sunshine? How come? There's 300 songs he could have done. He loves to perform. I've seen him three, four, five times. He's like Costello. He's an entertainer. And he loves to do it. You two are one of the great live bands. And whoever's listening, if you've never seen you two, See them. They went through their entire career with the goal of we want to be the greatest band in the world. And they became the greatest band in the world. And part of that is, of course, Bono's dynamic stage presence, which is more limited these days because he keeps falling off his bike and having heart surgery and this and that and the other. And they're tremendous. But <laughs> I think the second time I saw you two in L.A., they opened up for the Jay Giles band in LA at the sports arena. And that's how right there, folks, let that sink in. You two opening for the Jay Giles band freeze frame. It was a freeze frame tour. Single greatest concert I have ever seen. I will. I don't care who else I see. I don't care if McCartney and Ringo come to my living room. That you two Jay Giles thing was the single greatest concert ever. You two had just put out their war album. And they were still very young and Bono was still crazy and he was still running around the balcony with the war flag, the white flag. And he was still jumping down from the balcony onto the stage and the edge was still looking at him like, you have to stop doing that because we have a whole career ahead of us. And Bono came into the crowd and he was in the risers and he sat down while he was singing and he had a girl here and a girl here and he's putting his arms around them and he was singing just personally to them and he was running through the crowd and everyone was like, I don't know who these guys are, but they're great and we love them because they played to about half, half the crowd. Half the crowd hadn't even shown up yet. And then Jay Giles came on and Jay Giles absolutely schooled them on how to put on a concert. And I'm convinced that you 2 became the live band they are because Jay Giles showed them how to be a live band. I can't even put into words how great Peter Wolf was that night. Just jumping around on stage, you know, their music, their blues and their, their old stuff and their freeze frame stuff just came across live so wonderfully. And... It helped that we were standing right in front of the stage because it was general admission. And at one point, uh, Peter Wolf came right to the end of the stage and my friend Carla said, what should I do? And I said, pull him in, pull him in. She didn't pull him in. The, I, it, I, I wish I could articulate how great that show was. It's just, it's something that's just burned into my memory. I love the idea of 
another band kind of schooling the other guys. Yeah. You two at that time were just young puppies. Right. They're 22, 23 years old. And, Which is and hard to believe. It was like passing the torch. It was like Jay Giles and Magic Dick and Peter Wolf and, and all the other guys saying, lads, this is how you do it. And it was live performance level 400. You needed prerequisites to get into that class. So remarkable. I remember reading about Springsteen going on his first West Coast tour. And he is with all these West Coast bands. And they just basically kick his ass yeah. in the performance department. Yeah. He yeah. said, we were so raw compared to these right. bands on the West Coast that would just, bam, instant showmanship. Yeah. It's difficult to pull that off, instant showmanship, with an energy that is genuine sometimes, I think. So when you have it and you see it and people experience it, obviously you did. There are very few performers who are true performers, true entertainers. Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger comes to mind immediately because he's just... He's another one. He's 78, 79, 80 years old. He's still running around on stage like it's 1965 again. And the Stones are still a great live band. They're still better than just about everybody in the world. And they and they never mail it in. They've got the set list and they do the hits and nobody wants to hear anything off of anything later than Tattoo You and that's fine with them. And they're still doing Satisfaction and all that stuff. And they never mail it in. The last time I saw them, they had the main stage. And then they had this walkway. And then they had this little stage. And when they finished the regular set, they got up and they walked to this little stage, which probably the size of this living room we're in right now. It was not a big stage. Where the four of them, or the five of them, were six feet from each other in this little circular stage. And the really funny thing was, is that Mick and Keith and Daryl, and they all went up and they were all waiting. They're all waiting for Charlie. Ha! And because they know it's Charlie's band. Keith Richards in his book, Life, said, look, this is Charlie's band. We do what we do, but we don't do anything without Charlie. If Charlie doesn't like it, we don't do it. So Charlie got up and... The rest of them are, they're waiting and the crowd is waiting and there's 15,000 people and they're waiting and Charlie knows it. And he gets up and he's just got his house slippers on and he's walking like some 75 year old man, just taking his time. And then he sits down behind the drum kit and all of a sudden, like, like something from heaven came down and he went and they just busted into when the whip comes down. And it was just remarkable to see these guys on this little stage playing together like this after 50 years, just still playing like that. They don't mail it in. They don't mail it in. Let's continue after the break about that, because I think you're bringing up some really interesting ideas, ways in which a performer can perform that 
really brings it into the audience, really endears them to an audience. Yeah. We're talking about music here. We're just chewing the fat about music and performances with my musicologist, journalist friend, Paul Schneider. You're listening to Strung Out. Hey, want to show your support of Martin's Artist Endeavors? Buy me a coffee is an online site that makes supporting Marty easy. In just a few taps, you can make a payment of any amount and no account is needed. You can also decide to become an ongoing supporter. Go to martinmccormack.com and click on the words Support Martin. Let's help Martin keep it all caffeinated.
And before the break, we were talking about that idea of the Rolling Stones coming up during their set and being on a smaller stage. Whoever thought of that shared brilliance because that feeling of intimacy that they projected into a probably a huge space, cramming them all together. So the audience member is getting that vicarious early days of the Stones were a band working. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that bands of that magnitude have to play larger arenas and stadiums because everybody wants to see them because there's that much demand. When they come to Chicago and they end up playing Buddy Guy's Blues, or if Keith Richards just goes by himself to play Buddy Guy's, because that's what they love. They love the intimacy of playing the tiny places. I remember one time when Elvis Costello was here and he came out with his band afterward behind the theater and his keyboard player, Steve Naive, went off the other way. The other band members went to the tour bus and Steve Naive went down the alley to the other way. And I asked Elvis, where's he going? And Elvis said, there's a jazz club that he's just going to go to and sit and listen and maybe play. You guys, you guys just love that. I don't know. Is it camaraderie? Is it brotherhood? Is it just a feeling of just like being home in little? Because you guys, I've seen you play the big auditorium. Where is it? An Oak Park or Berwyn or whatever it is. And honestly, the stage looked a little too big for you. But when you're at Fitzgerald's, you're at home. You love that little stuff. So you, musician, speak to that. I think the uh, the energy, of course, is much more pure and raw coming from smaller spaces than it is from a big venue. It's just for the same reason you and I are sitting across from each other on this podcast. You got that exchange of energy. It's fun. And uh, I think there's also a certain amount of recharging the batteries that happens coming to those experiences. And it's also a good testament to whether somebody is able to check their ego or not. Oh, that's really interesting. That recharging of batteries thing. That's really interesting. Maybe that's why Glenn Tilbrook played City Winery those, those two nights. Where did Glenn Tilbrook play? It was at City Winery. Oh. Earlier this year or last winter or something. He was great. When he... he, he Everyone sang along with him, and I think, yeah, I think he really absorbed that energy and gave him uh, confidence, but the reassurance that people like me, people like these songs, you know. There used to be a club in Evanston. It's closed now, but Denny Lane played there one night, and he came out, and it was like, hey, Denny, tell us some stories. Tell us about going to Nigeria and making Band on the Run. Tell us about playing with Ginger Baker. And he, he couldn't get enough of it. I'm just, I was sitting there thinking, oh, he doesn't want to talk about this. He doesn't want, he's Denny Lane. He doesn't want to talk about Paul McCartney. He wants to talk about Denny Lane. He wants to talk about the Moody Blues. He could have filled another three hours with, this is what it was like to be in Wings. And this is what it was like to play with this guy. Play with. God, I, yeah, 
I think there's a confirmation of experience, confirmation of existence, if you will, for these musicians and for guys like you who, I guess, just why you're attracted to those smaller, more intimate spaces. Yeah. In fact, uh, Nick Lowe's playing tomorrow night in Evanston. Oh, is he at? Uh, He's at Space tomorrow night. Folks, uh, tomorrow night, yeah, go to Space and it's probably sold out. Sunday the 14th. Sunday the 14th, he's going to be there. Which Sunday, is, May 14th. So if you're listening yeah. later this week and you live, go see Nick Lowe, regardless. Nick Lowe. Give me your four singer-songwriters that somebody must see before they die. Not the person dies, but before, before the they die. Dies. Starting with the obvious. Good question, because they're all really old. They are. Sir James Paul McCartney. Is he, was he the obvious one? Yes, he's um, obvious. I would say Nick Lowe, because Nick Lowe has been performing since the 60s. He first had that English pub uh, pub band, Brinsley Schwartz. They were just, in fact, if I ever get like a huge dog, I want to name him Brinsley Schwartz. Nick Lowe has a catalog going back to 1968, 69 maybe, that he can draw from. He was the one who wrote Peace, Love, and Understanding, kids. Well, he was the one who wrote that, not Elvis Costello. I would say John Hyatt uh, is a must-see. A fourth one? Uh, Marty? No. I'm hopefully not going to die soon. <laughs> oh, die soon. Okay. So what about, what about, be, uh, like what about Springsteen, a f- probably. I'm not a Springsteen guy. What female artist have you seen that's knocked your socks off? Sid Straw. She's a singer from New York. She's another one from a show business family. Her father, Jack Straw, I think, was an actor. She has a tremendous voice. It's the angels singing. She doesn't do a lot of stuff, though. She's put out two albums, maybe, and she sings with other acts. We were going to talk about supergroups, and she was in one of those supergroups. In the 80s and 90s with Michael Stipe and a bunch of other guys. If she ever decides to go back on tour again. And if you don't know who she is, Google her. Find her on YouTube. You will fall in love with her like I have. In fact, one time at Shuba's, I saw her and she was sitting at the bar and I sat down next to her and I said, Sid, next to my wife, you are my most favorite female in the whole world. And she thought that was creepy. Other female... Victoria Williams, the woman who was married to Peter Case for a while, but unfortunately she died. So you can't see her. I don't know. I think Tina Weymouth, the basis from the Talking Heads, is pretty special. Sure. Uh, she, she did the Tom Tom Club with her husband, Chris France. I thought she was pretty special. God, I don't know her name, but that that bald headed black chick who played bass with David Bowie for a while spectacular musician. Did she front her own band or is she like a, her no, own solo performer? I, she's probably a solo performer. And I, I'm sorry, kids. I don't know her name, but she had quite a presence on stage. If you could play with David Bowie and have a presence on stage, you've got a presence on stage. That's one performer I regret I never saw Bowie. in my lifetime. Bowie. Bowie. Yeah. Bowie was great. I think I saw Bowie. On his serious moon, oh yes, <laughs> I saw Bowie on his serious moonlight tour. He was tremendous, and he had Phil Collins playing drums for him, and 
No, I'm get, I'm, you know what? I'm getting my shows mixed up. I saw Phil Collins play drums for Eric Clapton. And I don't like Phil Collins. So when I saw Collins play drums, it was the greatest time I've ever seen Phil Collins because he didn't open his mouth once the whole night. <laughs> All he did was play drums. <laughs> I have to laugh at that because that's like a true music cynic. Yeah. I, I mean, get it. I didn't have to hear him do Susudio or any of that crap that he put out as a solo artist or any of that stuff that he hijacked Genesis with after Peter Gabriel left. I know. I'll stop right now. Yeah, we're going to take a little break. You are listening to Paul Schneider, my musicologist, journalist friend, and this is Strung Out. Hello, everyone. Polly Chase here from Marty Fine Art. Have you visited Marty's website lately? I encourage you to check it out. We've added a new section for greeting cards featuring eight of Marty's original artworks, including his latest painting, One-Eyed Wolf. And did you know you receive a 20% off discount when you join the email list? Sign up today at martinmccormick.com and you'll receive a code for 20% off your first order. Shop for fine art prints, t-shirts, tote bags, coffee mugs, greeting cards, and so much more. Apply your code in the shopping cart and enjoy your 20% off discount courtesy of martinmccormick.com. Thanks for listening and happy shopping! Let's walk like we did when we were young Feel the breeze in our hair Rain on our tongues Remember when Remember then we had it all All in our hands all in our hands All in our hands We let it slip away On a hill shadows cross the field Explored everything nature would reveal Away. 
Let's touch again like when we first met Smoked a hookah, knew better days were coming yet Remember During the break, the doorbell rang and it was Phil Collins. No. Sorry, Phil. Yeah. And he's had a hard time of it now. Get better. Yeah. It's sad to see artist age. There's some that seem to age gracefully. I think Willie Nelson. Yeah. I always look at, I still want to pl- open for Willie Nelson before he passes or I pass. He just turned 90. He turned 90 and we were... Th- Switchback was this close to opening for Willie, and we ended up with the Moody Blues. That's not bad. Not bad at all. That's not bad at all. I love it when artists like the Stones or Willie Nelson, they get into that stretch. Provided, and this is where I'm different from people like, play me your old favorites. I wrote a blog about dying with your boots on. Yeah. Because there's very few artists that do die with their boots on in that way. Yeah. David Crosby died with his boots on. His last interview that I heard, he was talking about how excited he was. He was coming out with a new batch of songs. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah. We'll never hear them. And I don't want you to go back into Prince's vault and pull up the stuff that he put in there. You know, that's his boneyard. You don't mess with the boneyard and you pull out like an old wreck and you say, this is what I think Prince would have wanted. It's not. It's your right. car that you've just made out of pieces that Prince had in his boneyard. But I digress. In this time remaining, let's just turn it on its head. You you have, and by the way, Bowie, probably the perfect entertainer there ever was. And the perfect ending to a career, by the way. Black yeah. Star. Black Star. By the way. Yes. The perfect ending to a career. If you're going to put out an album and die three days later, that's the way to do it. Everything was a performance with that man, though he was an honest. I always felt, even though I never met the guy, I always felt like David Bowie, whatever he was doing, he was David Bowie. Yeah. And I just think that he's nobody can touch him, really. When it comes to that kind of performance. To know you're going to die of cancer. And you've got six months to live. And what are you going to do with those six months? You're going to write Black Star. And you're going to find these jazz musicians. And you're going to say, you know what, guys, just improvise. It'll be fine. Just play whatever you want. 
and I'm just going to put these lyrics to it. And it's a masterpiece. When it came out, I played it for a friend of mine who's a musician. And he said, God, this is as good as low. This is as good as anything you ever did in Berlin. And it is. It's just, yeah, it's talk about dying with your boots on. All right. To this day, it's like you can't bring up Blackstar and I just feel an enormous sense of loss. Other musicians that you have witnessed in your career where, let's just say that you would probably recommend never to see because they're just a disappointment on stage when you saw them. Switchback. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Everyone go see Switchback. Wait. They're, they're incredible. <laughs> just got rid of our last five fans, but keep going. <laughs> now you got quite a following. Uh, but never, who, who uh, do you think? Uh, and I don't Eric mean that- Clapton. Clapton. Okay. Clapton. I'll tell you why. I've seen Clapton twice. The first time with Phil Collins, he shut his mouth. The second time, Clapton mailed it in. Clapton is one of the great lead guitarists of all time. He does stuff that nobody else can do. And the second time I saw him, he deferred to Derek Trucks. He had Derek Trucks on stage playing lead guitar, and he deferred everything to Derek Trucks. And I just said, you know what, Eric, we're done, you and me. I respected his career, like some of his solo stuff, still like Derek and the Dominoes, but he mailed it in and I felt ripped off. It was so disappointing. Yeah. God, I can't think of anyone else. Have you ever seen uh, Van Morrison? Yeah, I saw Van Morrison. What's his personality like on stage? Oh, he's aloof. He's aloof. He, uh, I guess he had this reputation of turning his back to the audience for entire concerts. No, when I saw him, he was good. He's not dynamic. He stands in one place the whole time. But when he starts like scatting, my God, uh, you're, yeah, you're seeing true genius on stage. And his catalog, his body of work speaks for itself. He could just stand there and be Van Morrison and not move around. And it's still two hours of, my God, this is Van Morrison. And the audience accepts it. Completely. Yeah. The audience has no choice. Right. Um, they do accept it. I can't really think of anyone else where I've walked. I wasn't disappointed by the cars because I'm a huge cars fan, but we weren't a great live group. They were just like statues on stage. And I don't know if that's what you go to a Cars concert for. You want to be entertained, obviously, but they were statues on stage. Yeah. I have a hard time when somebody is just not moving to their own music. That kind of worries right. me. It, yeah. It's like they don't even enjoy what they're doing. It's like a job to them, a chore to them, which makes guys like Jagger so great. Guys like probably James Brown was so great. Seeing you guys, seeing you and Brian, you and Brian look like you genuinely love what you're doing on stage. And we do, folks, by the way. And (laughs) the funny thing about seeing you guys is when I see you at Fitzgerald's and I talked about when you played that large auditorium in Oak Park, how it was too big for you. I want to take that back now, because when you guys perform, it's like there's not enough room on stage for you guys to do what you do. Between Brian moving around and playing 
his guitar at 100 miles an hour and you doing your... The last time I saw you guys at Fitzgerald's last summer, I thought you were going to kick Brian in the head like four or five times because you were like three inches away from kicking him in the head. That's why I decided to go back to working out because I was like, I'm going to give myself a heart attack. Yeah. It's a lot of energy. We... For those of you who don't know who who switch back that the group I'm in, we primarily work as a duo. Sometimes we'll have a drummer, but uh, so you have to understand when there's only two guys on a big stage, you have to fill it somehow. And my favorite little anecdotal story was we were down at University of Texas, and uh, I get this phone call. We're on over in Ireland, and the lady that's putting on this concert, she says, do you think you can hire just a drummer or a couple other people? And I was like, just a left field question. I was like, why? And she said, some of the members of our board want to have more musicians on stage. And I I was totally taken aback and PO'd, then I realized she doesn't, she's never seen us. And so then we did the sound check and she comes in during the sound check weeks later and she came up after the show and we had to hire a drummer. We brought in this drummer and she came up and she said, when I heard you guys doing your sound check, I realized what you're talking about, projecting energy across a big space. And that's where I think we're talking about with this show is just there's certain people that have it and certain people, you better get some sidemen. Yeah, the thing I find fascinating about music is that first there's a blank space. There's nothing there. And then for about three or four minutes, there's this remarkable energy. And then there's nothing there again. And for someone as talented as you are or as talented as Brian is or as talented as the Beatles were, and some of those early Beatles concerts were, they were the Ramones, man. They yeah. were the Ramones. To create that energy in that little space and time and to have it permeate out into the audience where now everybody's dancing around and having a great time and they're completely losing themselves and they have shaken away everything from the day to just commune with what you guys do is if it's magical. It's really magical. Let's leave it on that because that's a nice way to end this podcast. And I want to thank my buddy, Paul Schneider, as always. And uh, you guys, thanks for listening. We're going to do this again. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. For more information about this show or a transcript, visit martinmccormack.com. While there, sign up for our newsletter. See you next time on Strung Out. Joy.